So I, I thought what we would do is go back to the first week at the theater. And, and I talked on John chapter 6, the very first sermon, the very first week at the movie theater. So if you want, turn to John chapter 6 with me. Now, John chapter 6 is a very interesting passage, and we could camp on it for literally a half a year, I think, and truly, uh, truly try to mine the depths of it. That particular week, at the beginning of Antioch, I took us to John chapter 6 with a sermon that was titled, Come and Die. That was the title of the sermon. And the reason I did that was because certainly in the 90s, um, and I think still largely today in the 2000s, we're in an era of the church that, that is referred to as the church growth era or the church growth movement. And this really kind of grew about, I mean, the, the age of the mega churches. Um, and it's not that mega churches are bad. Mega church, we're not a mega church, by the way. You have to have like 2,000 people or more to be a mega church. Um, and if we ever got there, like 1,999, we would just shut the doors and stay one shy so that I could talk about megachurch. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the first megachurch ever was, by definition of 2,000 or more, was the church in Jerusalem. First church ever. So there's nothing inherently wrong with size, nothing inherently wrong with a megachurch. But what happened was the 80s and 90s saw the explosion in America, not of, of the small rural church, but of the kind of in the city megachurch or out in the suburbs megachurch. And there was a, a lot of different things fueling this. One of the things fueling this was a marriage of business principles with the church. That basically, if we take business and management principles, how you would do a good Walmart or a good Costco or a good um, Target, if you take some of those same principles and bring them into the church, which is really uh, make sure we're speaking to felt needs. Make sure that people, uh, the customer is always right. Make sure that it's always a positive experience. Experience really matters. If people have a, a bad experience, they're going to kind of leave. Make sure you do these certain things. And if you do those certain things, well, we know that, that that's going to grow a large church. Now, there's a great side to that, which is a lot of people get reached. And a lot of people that may not know the Lord come to know the Lord or have their lives changed. That, that really the comfort level of inviting people into the church goes up. There's a lot of great things about the church growth movement. Here's the dark side, though. The dark side is it can be become all about nickels and noses. That's the metric that we kind of use. We, we count the numbers, we count the amount of money, and, and it's nickels and noses, and that's going to ultimately drive the vision that we have to keep growing, keep growing, keep growing. And if you're going down in size that something bad is happening, if you're going up in size, then something good is happening, and that's a bit of a false grid to lay over it, okay? Um, size is not always the real issue. In, <laughs> um, and so what I wanted to do when I came to John chapter 6 seven years ago was simply say that there's a, an aspect to this whole conversation with church growth where we have to realize that if it becomes all about money, and the number of people that a church has, we're going to eventually get very competitive. And then it, it gets really strange when churches are really fighting over people. And we're going to stop really witnessing to people that might take a long time. 
three years, 10 years, 20 years, like Paul would do in, in Athens or other places, to really help them understand God loves them, the God that I'm talking about really exists, has a plan, wants to have a relationship with you, that in some sense, if it's all about fast growth, we're just gonna be grabbing whoever we want and we're probably gonna be grabbing them from the small rural church or the church that doesn't have as much money or, or as much funding and, and, and we're gonna just celebrate that even though we're not really winning people over to the Lord. And then you get this, two, this kind of competitive thing going if that's happening where uh, I once heard it put, it's like two ants fighting over who gets to eat the elephant. You know, the, the churches begin to like really fight for which one's going to be the biggest or which one's going to grow the fastest or who's better simply because of church attendance and, and it creates this frenzy and then, and then we begin to worry about what other churches are doing and we don't realize there's a whole world out there to reach and it's like two ants fighting over who gets to eat the elephant. And so I, I, I was so afraid of that dark side of church where it really becomes all about religion or all about kind of the institutional side that the very first week at Antioch, I wanted to kind of put it out there and say, here's the whole idea of becoming a Christian. It's an invitation to come and die. The Bonhoeffer, when he said, when Christ calls a man to come, he bids him come and die. That was where I kind of got the phrase. Well, we see that in John chapter 6, but we also see something else that is very contrary to the church growth movement. So I want to read just three passages, chunks of this to you. But so what has happened, if, just to give the context, what has happened is Jesus has done one of his miracles where he's fed a lot of people. And these are people that are subsistence, um, living kind of on a subsistence level, Farming and those kinds of things. They're under the, the yoke of oppression of the Roman Empire. Uh, food matters. It matters a lot. And Jesus now just fed all these people. And it's, pre it's pretty remarkable. I mean, just think of how fast the word would spread if you were a part of that kind of a miracle. If somebody in this town just all of a sudden dropped $1,000 on everyone in, everyone in town, how, how quickly would that spread? And Jesus does this remarkable miracle and then he gets on a boat, and they go across, and he does another miracle, and then they're waiting for him on the other side. All these people have kind of run around to the other side, they're waiting for him when he arrives, and they're, they're a buzz. There's a buzz, there's energy. This is the thing, we're on board, we're all in, we're going to follow you, what's next? What's next? And Jesus begins by saying, um, verse 26, tell you the truth, you were looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Your felt needs are really a big part of why you're coming. Your experience yesterday and that you received something is a big part of why you're coming to meet me right now. So I tell you the truth, you're Looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, because God or the Holy Spirit was at work, but because you benefited. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And so they go, oh, okay, You're, 
where are you going with this? And if you're going to claim to, to be that guy, not just like a political leader or a great rabbi teacher, but if you're going to take it to that level, what's the sign, what's the miracle you're going to, you're going to kind of give that says that, which is a really ridiculous question if you think of what just has happened in the last 24 hours. And so they say to him, look, Moses gave us manna. And, and in verse 32, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, that it, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. Remember in the Old Testament, they're walking around and God sent bread like dew. It would be crusted on the ground and they would take and they would eat. Um, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they're talking about a leader of the nation of Israel who God used miraculously to provide food. And Jesus is saying, listen, you don't even understand it. I'm not in the seat of Moses. I'm the bread. When Moses was kind of helping lead and God sent bread that would provide, that would nourish, that would give life, that was a symbolic uh, foretaste of what he was going to do with me where I came down and I fed and I satisfied and I nurtured, but even beyond just the physical level, at a spiritual level, a level of depth, I'm going to bring about life uh, on a whole new order. I'm the manna sent down from heaven. And, and it's a paradigm shift for these people and they're kind of going, what, what's going on? Um, so then... Uh, Jesus expounds on this, and they begin to grumble. And Jesus is um, saying, I came down from heaven. Verse 43, stop your grumbling. No one can come to me unless the Father uh, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one who has seen the Father... No one has seen the Father except for the one who is from God, and only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. They begin to grumble, and Jesus says in verse 53, even more plainly, I tell you the truth, verily, verily, amen, amen, if you go down to the Greek. Amen, amen, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in me. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. So when I pre uh, preached this seven years ago, what I said, I, I kind of just did my own version of this passage. And I said, Jesus looked at the people and said, eat me. Because he did. What he meant by that is, listen, there is nowhere else that the stuff of life is going to come from if you don't start here with me. 
And obviously when he was talking about my body and my blood, we see in the Last Supper that, that he, he knew all along that his body was going to be broken, his blood was going to be shed, so that people who were estranged from God, far from God, in sin, literally this gulf between the two, that that could be reconciled and erased through his atoning death. He knew that all along and said, listen, ultimately I'm paving the way so that you can come back to where you were always meant to be in fellowship with God, in in relationship with God, experiencing true life. And you guys are talking to me about a loaf of bread or some fish. You're missing the point. If you're willing to follow me for that, how long is that going to last? Until the the Roman um, proconsul uh, offers more food or more reward? Till the Pharisees or the Sadducees give you a title or a position with a bigger salary or kind of an annual stipend of food so that you don't need mine anymore? Like, am, are you just following me for expediency's sake for now? Um, or are you really realizing this is the only place to be no matter what anyone else does? Is it about experience or is it about something deeper and spiritual? Now, I read this passage seven years ago because something really interesting happens. And at the bottom we see this. Jesus begins to explain to his disciples a little bit about the hard teaching. Like this is really weird stuff. I mean really weird stuff. And he he begins to kind of expound on them. And then at the end of this we see in verse 66. From this time on many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. From this time on many of his disciples turned away and no longer followed him. To the point where Jesus looked at the 12 that were remaining and said, now do you guys want to leave too? And so I, I was always challenged by this passage when you think about planting a church and you get the entrepreneurial itch to, to, to go and make something happen and to get it up and running and to see it grow and to flourish and to realize that somehow, some way, in all of that desire or hope or energy or excitement, if we're not careful, we could, we could just insert ourselves or I could insert myself or it could become very man-centered and, and then it becomes all about, look at how great it is just because it's big or just because it's growing and never really asking the question, what are people getting at the end of the day? Is it just more and more people or are we helping more and more people find Christ? Is it just more and more shuffling of people and programs or are lives being changed? Are people actually showing the fruit of souls that are being nurtured and, and discipled and loved on um, by a Savior that they've left everything to follow? And so I really wanted to start Antioch with a sermon that just says, we don't want to become a large church for a large church's sake. We want the Spirit of God to move, and if that takes us here, we want to go there. If it takes us somewhere else, we'll go there. If it leads to a lot of people, well then, okay. We'll follow God wherever he wants to lead. The church in Jerusalem wasn't a lot of canvassing to get a lot of people. It was um, God moved in a mighty way and people became Christians. They got saved and baptized and the energy was there about what was happening so that more and more were being added. People were going and saying, I really don't know what this is all about, but you gotta come. 
because something dynamic is happening, something miraculous is happening, and all the people were in awe. It's interesting the difference between a consumer-driven church, this idea of a church that meets my needs, my felt needs, and a church where the Spirit of God is working and somehow it's thriving or growing, that when it's just meeting my needs, awe is never the word that I would use. Satisfied might be. Fun, entertained, but it wouldn't be awe. Does that make sense? To, to come to a place and be in awe of, of what is happening, what the Lord is doing, it has to be beyond just your own felt needs or, or desire for a certain experience. It has to be like, oh my gosh, this is strange. This is rare. This isn't going to happen any other way except for God intervening. It's, I, I'm, I can see the inputs and they don't match the outputs this is really remarkable. This is buzzworthy or newsworthy or I got to go tell people about it because I'm in awe. It's, almost, it's miraculous. I don't know how to cash it out, but something's happening there that's incredibly exciting. And so if we start from this position of saying we're not going to compromise the message or it might not always feel good or it might not always be about me. It's about Christ. Because if it becomes about anything else, then we're no longer talking about seeing God. Because nobody sees the Father if we don't see the Son. Nobody comes to know the Father if we don't come to know the Son. So if somehow we lose our way about Christ, we're just now a great church business. It's religion, not relationship. And so how do we keep it honest? Well, it was like, you know, if we're not going to worry about numbers... If we're going to give people away, if we're going to let other church planters stand up in our midst and tell people, listen, if you feel called, go. It's okay. If we're never going to get to a hard passage and realize, wow, that's going to be a stumbling block. People are going to trip on that. It's not going to be popular. Like That, that might offend some people. Um, I still remember the first time it went from thinking about it and saying, I'm okay with it, to experiencing it. When in a sermon, not even intentionally, I took a detour and talked about immigration. And I, I simply tried to make the point, listen, at the end of the day, I'm glad I'm not a politician because it's a really messy deal. And I don't know how you like, figure all that stuff out, especially when you have no conversation or diplomacy going on, right? So I'm really glad I'm not a politician. That'd be hard. But I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian. It makes it real simple. I get to just love those people. They're strangers here. And the scripture that I read talks about how I'm a stranger too and that somehow there's empathy that should come from that and that these are people and that they're not just all drug like kingpins. There's single moms working in the service industry getting abused sexually and they can't report it because who would they report it to? And so whoever is the boss is taking advantage of the fact that there's fear in the system and leading to, to, to situate. There are all sorts of stories that I can have compassion for as a pastor and as a Christian and that I'm not going to just put everybody in a box and call it illegal immigration. I'm going to have a degree of compassion for it. And I, I, I went down that and I talked about it and 30 people left. And I was shocked. And it, I was grieved and then I got insecure, and then I didn't know what to do, and then I had that 
that silly thought of, well, how do you replace 30 people? Which is not the right question. It's not about that, right? But you go through all those different things and then you begin to go, you know, I'll do it again if I have to do it again. Because I know that Christ wouldn't say there's a whole bunch of people here and they're coming and they're tithing and there's a whole bunch of immigrants out there that are really hurting um, and they're in the margins. And I'm going to not talk about those people because it might upset these people. You know, Jesus wouldn't do that, right? So that's what John 6 is teaching me, is that somehow Jesus is saying, I am a stumbling block. Here I am. I'm a stumbling block. you got to drop all the preconceived, uh, preconceived notions, all of the ways we make it about ourselves, and you have to realize in, you're going to put all that aside and come to me. And you're going to come to me and you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You're going to make it about my forgiveness of you, my leadership over you, my direction that I'm going to take you, my being willing to introduce you to my father as the mediator and the high priest, that you're going to ultimately drop all of that sovereignty that you think you have and you're going to come and take on my values. And there's no negotiation there. I am a stumbling block. And so when I, when I was preaching this, that's where I was. And sometimes when I get there, it can be like really hard, like it probably feels right now. Come and die. I wanted to go back to this passage and flip it because it's there as well. And I want to just flip it and say, um, today I want to talk about come and live. I want to talk about come and live. Jesus said here, he says, this is the bread, verse 58, that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. You know, the stumbling block is the tension you feel when you realize you have to give up control of yourself. And it feels harsh. That's the stumbling block aspect, right? Look at it a different way and say, I'm able to give something that wasn't really working for me anyway. My own agenda, my own life, my own decisions, my own direction. I'm, I'm willing to give that away because I've got this offer of life. Uh, Jesus says elsewhere to the woman at the well, um, I'll give you water um, that will just continue. You don't have to keep coming back every day in the heat of the day and draw water out. If, if you really asked me, I would give you living water that would continue to sustain and to nurture. Jesus is saying, listen, you try all these different ways to make life work for yourself. You have some good days, maybe some bad days, but in that human effort, you don't really get far. If you, would, if you really understood the offer, the person, you would trade that for a better version of what it is you, that you always wanted all along. In, in your gut, in your heart, what you always know you wanted was that peace, that resolution, that intimacy with God, that sense of here I'm safe, here I'm cared for, here I'm loved. And so the stumbling block is a step, but when we switch the paradigm, it's not come and die, it's come and live. It's that we get to have what we always wanted and that freely, all it costs us 
is getting rid of what wasn't working or letting go of what's in our hands so that we can receive what's being offered to us. And there's this unbelievable offer that Jesus is always putting out and he must have been the most exasperated person in the history of the world. How do we become exasperated? You ever think about that? The, the idea of exasperated. It's something that happens when you know something Especially if you know something important. And no matter what you say to try to communicate, the person who's listening will not or cannot receive what it is you're trying to say. Parents know exasperation. We know it a lot. Counselors that deal with, with issues that don't go away very quickly know exasperation. Because week after week, there's truth right there, so close if you would just take it, if you would just receive it. Jesus knew the greatest of all truths. He made it so easy and so plain. I'm right here. I'm standing right here. Just switch your paradigm from making it about you to making it about what God is doing. Switch it from material things to spiritual things. Just switch your paradigm and you can receive life. Yet so many people are blinded or didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear and and Jesus was gracious. I don't think his exasperation, like with me, exasperation turns into frustration. Frustration turns into anger. Um, anger never goes anywhere else because uh, I always catch my, I'm just kidding. Um, but you know the progression of how it goes. So Jesus was exasperated. Sometimes he had righteous anger. Sometimes he was sad. You know, one of the saddest places we see Jesus is he looks over Jerusalem a guy who knows um, his time on earth is limited, uh, a certain number of days that are numbered, and, and how hard he's trying to work to bring this message to people. And he goes to this vantage point and he overlooks Jerusalem and he uses a feminine analogy. And he just, he says, how I long to just draw you to myself. Like a, like a hen would, would want to draw to herself. I, there's a nurturing element that I have so strongly within me to just bring you all here, to just gather you up, but I, but I can't, and it's not quite working, and I grieve that, almost the way a mother would grieve a child that just can't follow or find the way or whatever it is and you see this and you resonate with something incredibly deep in the personality of Jesus the second person of the trinity and we go man there's exasperation there and sadness that people don't understand they trip but they don't understand the offer that's being given there's an echo to another passage in Matthew that I want to take you to Matthew chapter 11 very famous passage I'll read it to you in one translation and then switch translations on you. Matthew chapter 11, at the very end here, in verse 27, Jesus says the same kinds of things he does in, in John chapter 6. In verse 27, Matthew 11, he says this, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. The same thing he was saying in John chapter 6. Uh, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And now in verse 28, Come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We had a little intro to Antioch thing written up when we started, when we launched Antioch. It was a kind of a three-paragraph who we are, what we're about. And we started it with that same passage in the message translation. Message translation is by Eugene Peterson, who is a Greek and Hebrew scholar. It's not just somebody that sat down and looked at the English and said, oh, I think it means this. It was somebody that was really trying to get into the lang- our language the felt intent of the Hebrew and the Greek. It's, it began in the Psalms for Eugene Peterson. The Psalms in the Hebrew are so messy and dirty and earthy and guttural. And, and he was looking at how it reads in our English Bible sometimes. It's so sanitized and clean and pretty. And he just says, you don't get the energy, the rawness, the desperation, the cry. And so he began to translate the Psalms. And then it just went from there. But you can see Eugene Peterson coming to this passage and knowing that this is a hallmark passage for Christians. And that he's trying to say, how in my translation, if I'm trying to get at this, how do I render that to be faithful to the scriptures, what's actually said, and to the intent? And so he says this. This is how Eugene Peterson says it. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and, and lightly and truly. And so we started kind of this little um, thing of Antioch with this passage and I think there's something in there that's grown in importance to me over time and it's that phrase burned out on religion um, religion when I when I was in engineering I, I, uh, I did an internship for three semesters and I went and worked as a purchasing engineer and, and research and development and a mechanical engineer at a company called Schlumberger and they they manufacture flow meters if it's liquid, somewhere along the way, it's, the flow has got to get measured, right? Um, so they manufacture flow meters. And, and one semester, I was helping them update all their quality assurance documents. So anybody familiar with ISO 9001? Some of you? Okay. <laughs> it's a real headache, right? But there's this whole kind of thing, quality assurance uh, of, of being in compliance so that you have a rating, and that rating makes it easier for you to do business. And so the ISO 9001 guidelines, we had the whole handbook, and then we had to have our own internal policies for this. And so I started writing policies, quality policies, for different departments and different things. And the, the head of the, of the whole thing, he would do a walk once a day. He, I think he read a book somewhere that says, True, truly great leaders walk around and manage you know, by, by touching people. So he would like take a stroll through the manufacturing plant once a day, shake hands, um, touch people on the shoulders and then go hold back up in his office again. But one time he kind of made his walk and then he came and found me and he said, hey, listen, Ken, I got, to, I got to see your presentation on the things you're working on and the things you're writing. It sounds, it's really great. It's really well written. It's really creative and it's really detailed. 
It's not good at all. And I was like, what do you mean? And he says, listen, you're not understanding the big picture here. If you create a lot of guidelines in our manual that we're supposed to live by, if they're not necessary guidelines and they end up working their way in there, then it all of a sudden makes business that much more difficult for us and it makes it that much more harder to stay in compliance. The goal here isn't to create more and more to-dos or checkboxes. The goal here is to pare it down to the essential things only for the well-functioning uh, of our business, for quality, and for us to be in compliance with ISO 9001 standards, etc. And it was like a light bulb went off for me, and I was like, oh, I get it. I could build endless laws here, and it's only going to make the guy, the average guy out there on the, on the manufacturing floor, it's only going to make his life miserable, trying to always check the manual and comply with everything, and you know what I'm saying? And, um, and I was like, ah, I, get, I had never thought about that. It's what we do at church. It's what we do with Christianity. We come together and begin going, oh, wouldn't it be fun if we made this more of a dominant value or priority? I don't like that other people aren't doing this thing that I care about, so let me like raise it up to the level of a ISO quality standard and kind of get it in writing. Why don't I just move my glasses down and really stare at that person that I think is a little bit out of line and maybe they'll come back into compliance because I'm really checking up on their behavior. And so we become the behavior police or the what a good Christian should look like police. And we begin to have churches that um, sometimes end up wounding the very people that were designed to find and to help and to heal. Jesus said, came to seek and save the lost. Come to me, all you who are weary. I'm, a, I'm like a mother hen. I'm nurturing. Like, I love it when you come to me with all your mess. You're going to drop a girl in front of me in the sand and the dirt um, in such a injurious, undignified way and then ask me to give my blessing to Stoner because she was caught in, in a uh, prostitution or adultery. First off, where's the guy? Second off, um, she's made in the image of God. Third off, I start with love. Can't you understand that? Like everything about what you just did to this woman and casting her down here started with judgment. She's not as good as you are. She doesn't measure up to your standard. She doesn't this, she doesn't that, and now you want me to render judgment. I came to put all that away and to give opportunity for people like her to go and sin no more and to find grace instead of judgment. And sometimes we do the ISO 9001 thing and people come here and they're looking for grace and they don't find it. They don't find it. Church can be like that. I... I uh, love the Reformation. I love studying the Reformation. I love history. And I was going through Wittenberg a number of years ago. And Wittenberg, Germany is where Luther nailed his famous 95 theses on the church door that kind of began the Protestant Reformation where the, the Catholic Church um, split from what became the Lutheran churches. And as that went on, the Reformed churches of Switzerland and, and the Netherlands, etc. So this is the big kind of split in Christendom. And it began in this town of Wittenberg. And Luther worshipped at a church. It was built in the 1400s. And um, if you stand at the, I forget which corner, um, I think it's northwest, could be wrong, 
But if you stand at one of the corners of the church and look up, this is a tall church, medieval kind of church. If you look up way up at the corner, there's a, a stone kind of carving set into the church in the corner. I mean, this must be 70 feet up. And it's a relief carving into stone of a pig being suckled by Jews. Um, a bunch of Jews suckling a pig. Which obviously is, is offensive of, of, a, of a thing to, um, to Jews as I think probably could have been done in that day. It was put up there in the 1400s. Luther was... Um, the, you know, late 1400s, early 1500s in that town. And um, that was the church he worshipped at. And it shows kind of in Germany, I mean, the, the whole ethnic thing with, with Jews or the persecution against the Jews goes, it's not a World War II thing. It goes all the way back, right? And so you sit there and you look at this and you go like, man, how could some of these reformers just have... They had great insights into doctrine and theology and where the Catholic Church was going wrong, but they completely missed it on some of these other issues, like treating people well. And so a number of years back, um, they came to some Jewish elders and said, do we take it down? It's offensive, obviously. Do we take it down? And these Jewish elders said, no. You let us put a, a uh, plaque in the ground right underneath that. And they hired uh, a, more of a modern artist, created this metal, molded this kind of metal thing that's a pane of four, four things being kind of pushed up in the middle. You can see kind of the lines um, being pushed up in the middle by just a big blob of metal. And you're like, what the heck's that? Doesn't really fit with Renaissance-looking Wittenberg, right? And the whole art form was um, you can't, Hide it. It's there. Um, the damage that church can do or religion can do or that Christians in the name of Christ can do uh, or the ugly head of racism or whatever it might be, we can try and hide those things or sanitize those things or pretend they didn't happen, but they do. And that's kind of what that artwork showed. And I think that there's a, an aspect to where we realize that we're helping or assisting as the body of Christ, bringing people to the head, who is Christ, that ultimately it's about bringing people to him. And sometimes we can help in that process. Sometimes we can get in the way in that process. Sometimes we can actually do damage in that process. So Peterson says, are you worn out on religion? Has has it become heavy? Have people burdened you up? Have they treated you as Christians in an unchristlike way? And I think sometimes we've got to admit that. So when, when I first started Antioch, you know what was wonderful? We hadn't messed anyone up yet. It was really nice to not have messed anybody up yet. Nobody had suffered church abuse at the hands of Antioch. So it was real easy, I think, at that time to say, listen, religion can be a part of the problem. It's also part of the solution. It was a lot easier to say that, like, um, proudly. It's been seven years now. I would, um, 
I would rather strike a different tone and say Antioch probably hasn't always been able to disciple the way we would want to or to connect people the way we would want to or give maybe the right counsel or involve people the way we should as pastors or leaders who are here to equip others to do the work of ministry. Um, We may have misunderstood people. I know I have. We may have done things that have led to misunderstandings. And I think I would honestly want to say we're sorry if we've ever let you or someone you know down or done anything that has made loving God hard for you. We would be sorry. We are sorry for those things. But in all that, God's faithful. And so where I get to stand today with it being messier than maybe when we started is to say somehow through all of that, somehow through getting the stumbling block right sometimes, And other times, it's not the stumbling block, it's just us being offensive or ill-advised or immature. Somehow in all of that, God has seen fit to grow us from um, a handful of three or four people to doing a pretty good job of filling up a 1,600-seat auditorium in Bend, Oregon. And that he's used us to minister to this community and used us to love on each other and used us to call the next generation of church leaders from around the country to come here, and we've probably messed some of them up too. But in all of that, I think hopefully we've been able to give them a passion for the local church. That the staff would be able to pass on that this really matters to us. I don't care about church because I work for a church. I work for a church because I care about the church. Right? I mean, this isn't exactly um, the thing that the guidance counselors give you as an option when you're, you're telling them your personality and and asking them what career path you can maybe steer into. I, I'm here because I have a passion for the local church. That somehow in all the mess we can do some good and introduce people to the one who ultimately is going to be the source of life and the source of salvation for all of us. I get excited about that. I get excited about things like the Justice Conference. I get excited about the fact that the Maras are in Kenya and that this church almost single-handedly put them there financially and helped raise support for them. I get excited about Tano and his family, uh, the Haudigis, and that they just felt called to go down to Costa Rica and they sold everything and went. Um, and that somehow Antioch and the whole idea of give your life away uh, was a part of that. You know, sometimes we said at the beginning of Antioch, take the best of what God gives you and give it away, that it's like the church at Antioch, that, that we take things and we hold it up to God and God says, I want Paul and Barnabas. And then you go, okay, you can have Paul and Barnabas. It's about your kingdom. It's not about us. We're here to serve you, God, right? Sometimes it got so much that I began to go, I'm tired of giving away our best. Like it was cool and fun and all, but now it's, it's a little much. I'm tired of saying goodbye to friends. I'm tired about a bad economy that, that leads people away. You know, sometimes we really do want to circle the wagons and make it safer and more sanitized and more air conditioned exactly to the way we're going to be comfortable. But ultimately, it's not about us. The church is the only institution known to man that exists for the benefit of its non-members. It's not about us. The church, Bonhoeffer said, is only the church when it exists for others. Um, Let me just close. Uh, Maybe two things. Two things in closing. Um, When I started the church 
I, I had this phrase that there's not enough churches that have a high enough ceiling on what they're willing to dream. I think a lot of churches think small. And we wanted to start Antioch and we wanted to dream big. And then as part of that, that leaders and visionaries and gifted and talented people would find a lot of headroom to get involved and to do and to change and to shape. And I think one of my enduring frustrations is that the business world in America gets all the good talent, that other careers get all the good talent, and that in some sense, the more successful that talent, the less time or energy that talent has to be involved in ministry. And I think I lament that, and I still do. I want to create a place and somehow create a conversation where we can figure out how does all the good talent, whatever your gift is, how do we find place for the expression of that in the body of Christ? That this thing could truly grow and reach people and change lives as we do that collectively together. That people would be in awe because it would look so different. I also said at the beginning that sometimes we overestimate what we can do in one year, but underestimate what we can do in five. We're seven years old. I would have never dreamed. I dream pretty big. I would have never dreamed of some of what we've been able to do. And I get excited about saying, what could we together do in the next five to seven years? If we tried to dream about what we could do in the next year, I think we might overshoot it. I think if we dream about what we could do in the next five to seven, maybe God would uh, absolutely shock us with what could truly be possible. Um, I wrote, and I think I ended the first sermon at Antioch ever saying that I think God is actually looking for a few people who are still idealistic enough to believe that we can change the world. Um, Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborer labors in vain, we ultimately can't do anything on our own, and we ultimately can't fix anything. But we can all change the world. And I think all of the commands that we see in the New Testament and the commands from Jesus and the commissioning from Jesus comes with a real straight-faced expectation that if we hear those commands and walk in obedience, that we ought to expect or understand that He expects that we're going to have influence and, and impact in the world. I believe God is looking for a few people who are still idealistic enough, believe enough in the local church that even though it has faults, that it somehow can be redeemed to this wonderful expression it was meant to be. A few people idealistic enough to believe that we can still change the world. Because if it was impossible to do it, God wouldn't have asked us to try. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we just commit this church to you. Uh, we have human hands and human minds and human hearts. I pray that you would refine us and discipline us even if needed. Help it never to become ultimately about the things of the world, but that we would be able to be a part of something that was truly miraculous, that your spirit was at work, that others that, that would see it would be in awe, and that more and more people would say, this is the place where when I come, I get rest, I get freed up from the demands of religion, I find grace, that people would sense the love of your son in the midst of those who go by his name. Amen.